This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Joining us today is Roger Bailey. It's actually the second time he's been with us. He was on episode 37 on the Navy and filibusters in the mid-1800s. And Roger, welcome back to Preble Hall. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, this particular episode is a is part of a two-part episode. The first one we did with Heather Haley, another graduate student, and both of you were the recipients of uh, the Clark Reynolds Prize. You were the winner, and she was the runner-up. Could you tell us what was what was the genesis of this prize? Uh, uh, so, uh, n- under normal circumstances, it's the award for the best grad student paper submitted uh, to the uh, NASO, the North North American Society of Oceanic History. Um, it's for their annual meeting, it's their prize for the best graduate student paper. But um, in this case, obviously, with the virus, uh, the conference had to be postponed. So it was just, um, you know, judged based on independent, like, submissions by people who were going to attend the conference. Fantastic. All right, let's get into the crux of this. What was col- what was the colonization effort about in the antebellum era in the United States? Yeah, so the colonization movement starts uh, shortly after the War of 1812, really kicks off in 1819, and it's supposed to be sort of a compromise middle ground solution to slavery. Uh, it comes out of the idea in early America that slavery was sort of a necessary evil, that it was gradually going to go away with time. And uh, a lot of Americans, and particularly like elite middle class white Americans, uh, thought that um, that they could speed this up with colonization, which would be to help uh, fund the Im- immigration of African Americans, free African Americans, or recently freed slaves to West Africa, where they would be resettled in what these Americans thought of as the native African homeland. And once they were there, uh, they would have the ability to spread American values, religion, democracy, trade to that region and become an American foothold. And there's there's two different main factions. There's a group that's more anti-slavery with this approach and likes the idea because they don't think that uh, black Americans will ever be able to have true equality with the racism in white America. And they see this as a way that they can actually have a shot at real equality, um, sort of an early separate but equal idea uh, in their minds. Um, and then there's a lot of a lot of uh, colonizationists, especially in the South, who see this as a way of supporting slavery, who think that freed uh, black people are going to spread abolitionist ideas in the South, that they could help slaves run away, help organize slave rebellions. And they like this as a way of getting rid of these dangerous subversive elements from their society. Is there a way to track back where this really starts? Are there a group of people or is there one person in particular that you can trace this lineage lineage of ideas to? I don't know if I would say there's a specific person. Uh, it springs up uh, in tiny amounts here and there uh, in the, you know across the country. It's especially popular in the mid-Atlantic, but it coalesces into the American Colonization Society, which is this national – organization that that binds together a lot of independent groups um, with this general goal in mind. Were there key figures within the American Colonization Society? 
Yeah, especially at the beginning, it has a lot of high-profile uh, American leaders. So uh, James Monroe, who I imagine we'll, we'll come back to later as we talk about this, um, is a big patron. Uh, James Madison, Henry Clay, uh, Daniel Webster, um, I want to say Andrew Jackson, um, John Marshall, a lot of, of very prominent early Americans uh, support this plan. Um, it becomes a little bit more polarized and loses some of that support as time goes on, but at least at the beginning. You just provided are pretty much the major political figures in the United States. Uh, so this was across political ideology lines. This was north and south. Um, at the beginning, yes, uh, and and it stayed north and south uh, as time came as time went on. Especially Henry Clay endorsing it makes it a little bit more partisan, and it becomes a little bit more associated with Whigs, um, and a lot of Democrats start backing off from it. But uh, even still, like uh, more uh, Whiggish Southerners um, who are less hardcore on the issue of slavery keep supporting it like, you know, basically up into the Civil War. There's still some people who support it. But the Navy is involved in this, obviously. Why is the Navy involved? Yes. So the Navy becomes involved, particularly because the movement has such powerful patrons in the federal government. It is not a federal program, uh, like the American Colonization Society is a private organization, but it, because it has these powerful, powerful sponsors, it gets federal funding to establish the first colonies, uh, fund, funding that's actually diverted from slave trade suppression um, on the, the pretext that this is going to become a place where we can, as a nation, put freed slaves uh, or, or, or recaptured Africans who are, are freed from slave ships. Um, and that does that does ultimately happen. But, but in the short term, before that's happening at all, this money is diverted and the federal government also has naval ships uh, support the foundation of the first colony, which is in uh, the plans start being made in 1819, and the final colonization happens in 1822. But uh, the the first the first expedition is accompanied by um, uh, a warship commanded by Captain Edward Trenchard, I believe, uh, and more notably, his first lieutenant is Matthew Calbraith Perry, who uh, would go on to become a lot more famous for opening up Japan to Western trade. Um, and they help uh, sort of scout for locations for the site of this colony. And then a second expedition later under uh, Lieutenant Robert Stockton actually uh, seals the deal with negotiations. Stockton, in fact, even maybe goes a little bit beyond uh, his his purview, which was just supposed to be to sort of protect and, and guide and advise the expedition. Um, and by some accounts, actually, uh, <laughs> at gunpoint, <laughs> threatens uh, and intimidates uh, local African rulers into selling land at a very, very cheap rate to the American Colonization Society. Um, Where did you find the sources on that? So there's there's a number of them that you can find uh, published, um, I think, in the Congressional Serial Set, and, and a, a lot of uh, you know government documents that have since been published uh, mm -hmm. contain um, Ayers, uh, the account of uh, Eli Ayers, who's um, the American Colonization Society agent, um, who's supposed to be the main agent in carrying this out, but who sort of winds up taking a backseat to Stockton. Um, and Ayers, Ayers, incidentally, is commissioned as a surgeon in the Navy for this expedition. He is a doctor, but he has this sort of special, weird Navy commission for this expedition, which shows you the extent of naval support. Um, 
But uh, so the original accounts uh, that you see, like from Ayer's records and his writing to the American Colonization Society, and exist in their papers. Um, Where are those just, located? Um, the American Colonization Society papers are at the Library of Congress, I believe. Um, and uh, but I, again, I, I believe a lot of those are also published, at least um, in part, in other collections. Um, I'm sure there's some in the American State Papers as well. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Now um, you begin your paper with a quote by Matthew Morey. Who was Matthew Morey, and why does he play a role in this? Um, so Matthew Morey, in some ways, doesn't play <laughs> a direct role in this. He's, he's sort of um, an example of of where this ultimately ends up. He's uh, so he's a, a lieutenant in the Navy. He's the superintendent of the naval Ca uh, the naval observatory in Washington D.C. Um, and he's uh, often known as the father of oceanography. I think we uh, maybe touched on him last time a little bit. Um, and he is very active in calling for the use of science and research um, technology, the things that he is studying in particular relating to currents and winds. He, he's interested in, in calling for this to be used in American policy. Um, and he becomes interested in this question of what to do with this racially mixed society we have long term. And um, ultimately, Maury decides that uh, colonization is a failure. Um, he like he looks at, at the movement to Liberia and we, we can talk more uh, later about why why it isn't more of a success. But he looks at it and says that this isn't really working um, and instead. Uh, starts thinking uh, to find other. He starts looking for other similar solutions. Um, and his, in his case, he thinks that uh, you could actually export American slaves uh, south into the Amazon, which he thinks is, you know, is mostly he sees as undeveloped land and basically unoccupied, which is not <laughs> not true according to people who live there but in in his mind he sees this as as an opportunity to sort of kill two birds with one stone economically develop this region and he thinks the winds and tides will carry that trade that you know that that is born there and the raw materials harvested there will carry them through America uh, through the south to Europe and that by doing that we will enrich America and we can um, we can slowly uh, slowly export our slavery away from the country as it you know potentially goes into decline in America um, so he he represents in some ways the the even naval officers who didn't support colonization and most of them I argue actually did support colonization supported it in in a different in different forms they were still looking for these external solutions to the question of slavery in the country premised on the idea of you know, getting rid of black people that they didn't think belonged here. Aside from Maury, were there other officers who were published advocates or opponents of the slave, slave repatriation? Because Maury was obviously one of the more highly published officers of the 1830s and 40s. Yes, um, but you know, we're talking about a period when a lot of a lot of officers were were writing and publishing a lot, both things like uh, travel narratives and memoirs and um, like editorialized articles and journals and things like that. Um, so Maury touches on colonization a little bit, but uh, the actually the, the best example is probably Andrew Hull Foote, 
who uh, some listeners might be more familiar with from the Civil War. He uh, is responsible for capturing uh, Fort uh, Henry uh, on the Tennessee River. Um, and uh, Foote writes a book called uh, Africa and the American Flag that's uh, very much trying to call attention to the America's to what America could and should be doing to support Liberia and stamp out the slave trade in Africa. Um, another good example is uh, Horatio Bridge, who's a Navy purser. Uh, Horatio Bridge is another good example, and he writes uh, a popular book uh, that's actually edited by his friend Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, called, the book's called uh, Journal of an African Cruiser, um, and it also is uh, very favorable in the way it talks about Liberia. Um, and those are those are probably the two biggest examples of like published book length works. But uh, other officers, uh, including some Southerners, um, are, write about this. One one of the more eccentric things I found was an officer who wrote a children's storybook uh, about like a cabin boy. And it gives a little shout out to Liberia as being like a, he calls it a free republic like our own. Um, and a lot of officers who didn't directly publish things would send their correspondence or, or write specifically to editors of colonizationist journals to to have their accounts of Liberia published that way. Mm-hmm. What kind of sources did you check during this period? I know the, in the 1830s, for a couple of years, you had the Naval Magazine. For several years, you had the Military and Naval Magazine. Are they publishing through these or other journals aside from, from those associated with the ACS? Um, so there, most of it is, is elsewhere there. A lot of what I've looked at has been, uh, like I've looked at the published books that I mentioned. Um, a lot of it is in the, the ACS journal or the journals of other state colonization societies. Um, but they do occasionally, you know, the, the journals you're mentioning obviously are are very service oriented, but even, even those occasionally, um, I've found at least one, um, like a, you know, report that was not written specifically for the journal, but it was written by, uh, a captain that was included in the naval magazine um and uh so they do occasionally you know those those things did publish travel accounts and so that even even those carried carried these sort of favorable accounts from these officers and and circulated those ideas within the officer corps now you mentioned that the american colonization society was a was really a loosely if i understand this correctly a loosely affiliated group of societies what were those? What were so those subsets? It, they weren't really chapters of the ACS. Um, the yeah, the exact. I'm not an expert so much on the like exact nature of of their relationship all the time, mm-hmm. but there it was. So I'm not an expert on the exact relationship between the state societies and the national society, uh, but the ACS was basically made up of these these state societies that cooperated very closely. Uh, corresponded, they, they shared uh, sort of shared colonies even to some extent, like initially the colonies that are established um, in in Liberia, the ACS itself establishes the first one at, at what will become Monrovia, um, and then other state colonization societies found nearby settlements that, that slowly uh, merge into Liberia collectively. Um, and and for the most part, these societies were very closely intertwined, had similar, uh, you know, overlapping officers and things like that. Um, the leaders, 
you know, they would when the ACS would have a conference, all the state societies would send members to the like send representatives to the conference to speak and things like that. Um, the Maryland Colonization Society is particularly interesting, though, because it, it sort of breaks from the ACS. And even though at the beginning they had a lot of shared membership and stuff, they think that the ACS is too uh, it isn't focused as much on like Maryland specific needs and is too focused on appeasing slave owners. And they, the, Mar the Maryland Colonization Society really wants to emphasize this idea of gradual abolition through expatriation. And uh, so they, they actually, they found their own settlement, but their settlement does not merge with Liberia until like the 18, like the late 1850s. Um, and so there's this separate Maryland and Liberia colony that the Navy is also, also uh, helping support um, and sort of doing its own thing. Now, the Navy is not transporting uh, either free or enslaved blacks, correct? Mostly. When we talk about colonization, we tend to talk about the like um, about Amer African Americans being sent to Liberia. But one of the purposes of these colonies was also to, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, to talk, to like support and, and uh, reintegrate liberated Africans who had been rescued from slavers. And so the Navy is on occasion involved in transporting those when they capture a loaded slave ship, they will take those people um, and take them, to Liberia, where they will leave them in the care of the ACS. Um, so, in in that sense, they are sometimes uh, you, you know you can I wouldn't exactly call them enslaved Africans, but uh -huh. but they are effectively still locked on a slave ship. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, the the navy because naval slave trade suppression is not very effective, there aren't that many instances of that happening. Why did they pick Liberia? Because by this time. Weren't the European powers had, – had, had they really uh, divided the continent, as it were, in the, in the age of empire and, and uh, colonization? What, what makes that area of Liberia so special? Part of it is uh, proximity to the country and proximity to the British colony at Sierra Leone. Um, so the British are doing something a little bit similar there um, with a, a colony for free black people. Um, although it's it's administered differently. And so uh, in that sense, it's not quite as remote as it would be if you had it somewhere else, um, you know, like maybe much farther south on the coast or something like that. And that that's a, a big part of it. Uh, it's not like the region is particularly um, like it was decent for agriculture, although the colony has a really hard time getting its agriculture off the ground. It wasn't like uh, the area was like particularly uh, wealthy or anything like that. Uh, it's mostly, I, I think, proximity. Um, Do we get a sense of how large these colonies were? Are we talking 20 to 30 people, a thousand? Uh, usually, I mean, they obviously they grow over time and, and significantly. Uh, they started, with, usually started with a few dozen settlers um, and tended to grow into into like the, the larger ones into like the low thousands. Um and uh, and as this was happening, they were also expanding um, like along rivers, especially like into the hinterlands of the colony. And so you're you're you know how how you define the population varies because that you know usually starts like Monrovia is like a settlement. Cleaner answer to this would be that the colonies tend to start out with a few dozen uh, or or like low hundreds of settlers. Um, grow into the low thousands and and expand into the the hinterlands as, as that 
goes on. And then, of course, as time goes on, they actually they start to merge with each other. And so they become larger. And all this time they have to be balancing this expansion with the uh, native Africans that live around them. And they have to be purchasing land or, or building treaties with them. And, and that tends to create its own problems and frictions, about, especially about how much these native Africans play a role in Liberian society. What kind of supplies are the or support is the Navy providing to the colonies? So mostly the Navy, I mean, in, in pinches, I think there's instances of the Navy supplying like food and things like that. But mostly the Navy, when it does provide supplies at all, it will provide them with armaments if they're if they're in a pinch. Um, there's one case of them. I know uh, supplying a colony with rockets in the, the theory that that might like intimidate and scare off. Uh, Africans who they were fearing war with. More of their support tends to come in the form of like diplomatic support. Uh, so they would mediate disputes. Uh, they would intimidate African African uh, villages and communities that the Liberians felt like were wronging them. Um, and they would often do a lot to sort of obfuscate. The, the Liberians would go out of their way to obfuscate the relationship between the Navy and Liberia because the, the colonies, while they were founded by Americans and with American support, America did not actually claim them. And so they had this very ambiguous uh, legal stance when it came to foreign policy and negotiations, and they did not have a, a right to American naval support. The Liberians, like the leaders, wanted to create the impression that the Navy is was, was like there to, to protect them and support them, which the Navy often did but was not obligated to. And so they would deliberately, and the naval officers were complicit in this, they would uh, deliberately try to make negotiations about, uh, like hold negotiations about mistreatment of like American merchant ships right alongside negotiations about Liberian land purchases. So it became kind of indistinguishable that, you know, these are actually two completely different parties that were negotiating with a particular. Now, you write that naval officers' sympathy for colonization was prevalent among members of the officer corps. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? The reasons for that are are interesting, and it's hard to determine exactly why, but it seems likely that a lot of it stems from the fact that these officers belong to the same sort of class as colonizationists in America. So they tended to be middle class white men with a more sort of cosmopolitan view of the world from their career in the Navy. They tended to see themselves as professionals and, and men of learning, and they tended to look for external solutions to American problems. And that, I think, naturally made them predisposed towards this. They tended to not be slave owners, or if they were slave owners, they didn't as often have like huge plantations to manage because their main career was being a naval officer. Um, so they didn't have as strong an opinion on slavery. And so this, for the time, moderate solution was appealing to them. And they they were in a lot of ways raised in the Navy. Most of the commanders, at least in this period, didn't attend the Naval Academy because it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, when the Naval Academy you know, you know, did exist in 1845. It was a while before the, those first graduates actually made it. And so they, they were like raised at sea um, with with other officers from all over the place. And so they tended to have a lot of sharing of ideas. They their friends and social circle social circle circles. <laughs> their friends and social circles okay. were not as uh, 
They're friends in social entrenched, circles. Entrenched yeah. in the slave in, in slave trade or exactly. In, yeah. uh, so I think that makes them much more amenable to this. And then when they actually go to Africa, in many cases, because they're policing the slave trade or on one of these missions to support the colony, uh, they tend to to like what they see and they they write about it. They tend to think that the the project is working or at least could work if it was just given more support. Um, and uh, and so then they come back and they write about it. What's the proper terms? Is it repatriation? Is it expatriation? Because technically, if you go back to the roots of the words, they're going back to a particular country in which in in, not, in neither case or none of the cases would this be true. Because yeah. you're talking in some cases generations of either free blacks or enslaved blacks, uh, they would not have any idea what part of the continent they had, they had come from. So first of all, let's talk about the terminology that's used for this. Yeah, so it would definitely not be a repatriation. That that much I think would be clear. If you were if you were to ask uh, like Frederick Douglass or or many of the African Americans of this time period, they would be very clear that they do they do have a country, that that country is America, um, and that that was where they were raised. It was the language, the English was the language they spoke. They practiced the Christian, the Christian religions that were prevalent in America. Um, their families were there, their homes were there, their social networks were there. So the, the, the movement was really very unpopular with most African Americans because it was essentially, you know, like <laughs> proposed, you know, exile, um, <laughs> like voluntary exile. And, and they feared that if the idea caught on too much, um, you know, people in power would enact this as not voluntary exile and would actually just kick them out of the country. Um, so most most African-Americans um, and, uh, you know, leaders and abolitionist groups and things like that uh, vehemently fought against this. Um but some of them, there were some that supported it because of, the, because of this fact that they just felt like they would never have equality in America, that there would always be uh, white supremacy and and racism, and you can, in this particular climate, you can. Sure. It's a little bit easier to see how salient some of those points maybe were. Um, well, well, is it fair to say that naval officers during that period tended to be more open-minded about race and? more tribal cultures because either their ships or when some of them served on merchant ships had multiracial crews and those officers were more familiar with the world around them than say most Americans who were not traveling the world. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, point. And it's one of the places I actually want to go with this project when I've finished with the the main dissertation. Um, I, I'd like to expand it to look a little bit more at race within the Navy in this period. Because um, there there isn't a ton that's been written about it. Uh, certainly, the crews were very diverse, um, and uh, even though there were, for large parts of this period, bans on African Americans being in the Navy, you still had them as as cooks and stewards and officers brought personal slaves aboard and things like that. Um, they're still. I should be very clear that the officers are still very racist. Um, <laughs> they still like they they do not think that white and black people are equal, but they see African Americans, most of them see African Americans as the most sophisticated group of black people in the world that they have 
in their in their encounters usually, or or at least among them. They see them certainly as much as a much different um, element, um, as a much different uh, uh, cultural group than like Native Africans. And so I, I think part of their sympathy comes from the fact that you have these officers who are for years stationed overseas in this hostile, what they see is this hostile climate, hostile environment with um, a- African people who they think of as, as basically savages. Um, and the African-Americans there are, you know, in, I mean, in point of fact, they're American. So they like, they have the same values and culture and language and all this stuff. And it's very easy um, in juxtaposition for them to feel an, akin- an affinity and a kinship with them. And in some cases, the officers like literally know them or they come from the same communities and things like that. There's uh, Horatio Bridge, who I mentioned earlier, is, is writing this this book. Uh, he realizes when he's there that the president of Maryland, Liberia, uh, who is black, is uh, had been the first uh, black graduate of of uh, his own college, of, of Bowdoin College, while Maine. he was there. Sorry? Up yeah, in Maine. Yeah. College in Maine, right. Yeah, exactly. And and while he, he knew him, he was a classmate of his, from, and they went to college together, um, and they, they reconnected on this trip and became friends. And I've seen Southern officers who would go and realize that, like, you know, they would they'd meet someone who came from their town or the neighboring town, and they had shared acquaintances that they could catch up on. So um, I think that the fact that this was sort of an outpost of America there, even if it was black, made it a little bit um, – a little bit more appealing to them. And the fact that it was not in America made it less threatening. It was an area, they, they all thought of the climate as being just uh, too dangerous for white settlers to live there. And so this was an area where white people couldn't be settling anyways. And it, it was easier uh, for them to situate this in their sort of larger vision of what the world should look like, what American empire should look like, and what race relations should look like. You mentioned Perry and Stockton. Can you discuss the experiences of the senior officers uh, like them, uh, especially off the coast of Africa, with regard to the American Colonization Society? Uh, so, yeah, so they, they generally had pretty vague orders. Uh, the government in, in general tried to keep itself a little bit distanced from um, taking a firm stance on, on Liberia um, and and making it a part of American foreign policy. And they tended to push this off on the naval officers by giving them sort of vague instructions that either didn't refer to Liberia or only referred to it in a really general sense to like maybe look after American interests there. So they, it was mostly up to them and their discretion. And and in these, these early expeditions are a little bit different where they were specifically supposed to intervene, but they inspired both of these officers with, with a, a longstanding interest in colonization. And Stockton probably exceeds his orders when he acquires this land with with threats uh from he's using uh, wait is he using is he using ships money for this or is he using family money because he came from a very prominent new jersey family well he's not using money himself um i i meant like sort of the when stockton threatened the native africans uh that were in the area that he wanted to settle what would become monrovia when he like Mm -hmm. uh had the negotiations for that land purchase on behalf of the ACS and the ACS money, he was, he was uh, threatening them with use of force himself. And, and the, the actual accounts vary. The, the accounts that I mentioned, the official reports just say that he alludes to the fact that he had um, sort of illegally 
taken a French slave ship earlier because they like made a fool of him and the African king was making a fool of him. So he'd better watch out or he's going to do the same. Later, Stockton um, is uh, planning on running for president. And there's a like a campaign biography of his naval career that comes out that says that he literally drew a gun uh, <laughs> on the king um, in the middle of this meeting. Uh, and it's, it's hard to say if that's just sort of campaign bluster or if that happened. But either way, there is definitely some threatening going on. And and it's not clear that he should have been involved at all in in this negotiation. Well, he also and, had some. He he also had a checkered career. I mean, he <laughs> you know his command of the Princeton did not go well, but you know he did yeah. become U.S. senator. So in, in the in the course of the period you examine, 1819 to 19 uh, sorry 1860, is there an estimate of how many uh, free or previously enslaved blacks went to Monrovia or the other colonies? Yes, uh, but I, could we actually jump back quickly sure. to Perry? Because mm-hmm. yeah, it's probably worth mentioning. Oh, sure. It's significant. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so Perry and Stockton, though, um, you know, Stockton goes on. Actually, he becomes a colonizationist leader himself uh, in the colonization movement. And Perry, uh, more notably, uh, tries to get African cruises. One of the only officers that's trying to get them becomes the first, uh, the first commander of the Africa Squadron. Uh, and sort of sets the pre- sets the precedent for that squadron's behavior moving forward and and very vigorously intervenes on behalf of of Liberia with force um and uh a lot of his officers uh tend to get their hands dirty in fact there's there's one massacre that happens under his watch basically it was like a negotiation that went wrong and there's accounts of officers like um, you know, literally killing an African king, like stabbing an African king, shooting interpreters who were running away and things like that and burning villages down. So Wait, a just bit. To, sorry, just to clarify, are, those are not those are not uh, the crew of Perry's ship. Those are colonists. No, no, those are the crew. So the, okay. in this. Yeah, this account, this is the basically Perry was trying to uh, ascertain what happened and get justice for the, the crew of an American merchant ship called the Mary Carver. And negotiations uh, just go wrong, like the tensions escalate and then the king tries to leave and they start grappling, like Perry himself starts grappling with the king and then it just explodes into violence and there's just this general melee and um, the, the unsurprisingly the well-armed party of Americans with all the Marines and stuff like that out there on the beach, uh, like pretty easily defeat the, uh, the unprepared African tribe there and just um, like you know, let loose, burning the town down and things like that. Um, pretty, a little bit extreme compared to normal naval interventions there. Um, but, but not that far removed. It was pretty common for the Navy to use uh, certainly the threat of force and on occasion actual force against African villages to compel them to honor treaties or, or get justice for anything. And, and unsurprisingly, the Na- like the Navy would do something like that. And unsurprisingly, all the neighboring tribes then would be much more willing to to sign treaties in favor of Liberia because they thought that these, you know, that that the American Navy and Liberia were working together, and in, in point of fact, they sort of were. So in the long term, it, the naval actions provided more security for the colonists at at Liberia in Liberia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that they often these naval actions would like the navy would be accompanied by presidents from the, the Liberian colonies. Um, so they really, it's it's very hard sometimes to distinguish whose interests they're most in, whether it's Liberia or American interests. And 
and because all the librarians or almost all of them are in fact American, the distinction sometimes seems almost meaningless. Why do the uh, colonization efforts eventually dissipate? And when does that happen? It's it's a gradual process, but uh, really you can trace it to especially starting to decline in the 1830s when it gets more politicized. There's a slave rebellion in Virginia and uh, gradual emancipation loses people like lose a little bit of interest in that and they start to get more polarized on slavery and southerners start saying that slavery is actually a positive good that it's better for african americans to be enslaved and it's better for the economy and it's in everyone's interest and northerners start increasingly saying slavery is just bad and needs to be immediately abolished completely and entirely and we shouldn't be messing around with this idea of of exporting people and there's there's resurgences uh there's the fugitive slave act encourages some immigration to liberia and actually after the civil war the movement is still like limping along and uh jim crow encourages some immigration to liberia but by and large um by the time the civil war breaks out it's it's pointless you know there, there's no more real strong need for it um because slavery is abolished and then um and the the intervening years, there's this gradual decline as people start pulling away. But I, I would argue that this is part of why colonization is important and the, what the officers did was important because they were really instrumental in in helping legitimize this otherwise sort of failing vision for a lot of Americans. They were losing faith in this kind of compromise solution to slavery. And the Navy sort of helps keep this this dream alive, even though in reality, there were only ever 15,000 African-Americans sent to Liberia, you know, like by, I think, 1867, there were only 15,000 out of the millions and millions of African-Americans here. It made almost no real effect, but they it, it kept moderatism alive a little bit longer leading up to the Civil War. Roger Bailey, doctoral candidate, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having and- me. And I wish you well with uh, your continued research. Uh, You've been on twice now, Roger. I think it's just great stuff that you're doing on the antebellum Navy and understanding the world that time. So, And for our listeners, thanks again for joining us. Uh, Be well. Thanks. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.